Over the last two studies, we've been seeing the revealed wrath of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And thus far, we've covered verses 18 to 27, where we've seen fully the first two of our outline points, the revelation of the wrath of God, verse 18, and the reasons for the wrath of God in verses 19 to 23. And last time we began the third outline point of our study on the wrath of God, the results of His wrath. In verses 24 to 32, specifically keying in on verses 24 to 27. Before we move on to verses 28 and following, though, I want you to be reminded of some things that are foundational for us to understand as we approach the last portion of Romans chapter 1. To do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and the description of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Listen to God as He spoke these crucial words to Moses and the people of God, specifically in verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, of that in the earth beneath, or that that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children in the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I have read for you the first two of ten commandments, or as they are sometimes referred to, the ten words. And the reason I have done so is to point out that God has given mankind in these commandments an abiding testimony of both his character and command. It is a testimony of his character in the sense that his character is a reflection of his very nature. And it is a testimony of command in the sense that God expects men and women to follow what he has ordained in these words. And for our purposes, He begins these Ten Commandments by commanding that man shall have no other gods before Yahweh God, the God who brought the Israelites out of bondage from slavery in Egypt. And secondly, he commands them not to make any carved image or likeness that represents anything of heaven, which is the abode of God, or on earth or under the earth, which is God's creation. 
He expressly says that these created things, the heavens and the earth, are not to be worshipped or served by creating replicas of them or any part of them, and then bowing down to them, thus destroying the creature-creator distinction. Only Yahweh God, the Creator God, is to be worshipped and served, bowed down to, not anything that has been created. You don't take a part of creation, some element of creation itself, and create something out of it and then worship it. That's the point. This destroys the very heart of the necessary distinction between the Creator and His creation. If you don't emphasize this, you then have creation worshiping creation. You see? You have a created entity, man, using another part of creation, rocks or trees or metal or some other aspect of the created order itself, completely apart from acknowledging the original Creator Himself. And what that does is it's tantamount to pushing the Creator God totally out of the picture and having the creature taking creation and worshiping it rather than the Creator. And this, beloved, is precisely what the Apostle Paul is condemning here in Romans 1. This is the very reason Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. Even though all men did not receive these Ten Commandments, only the Jews did, nevertheless, Paul is building the case here in Romans 1 that all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men deserves God's wrath, which must include those who had not received the oracles of God like the Jews. It's universal, in other words. All men, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How could Paul say that? Because surely someone might come along and say, I'm not a Jewish person. And I've never received this kind of instruction like the Ten Commandments and the other teachings of the Torah. How can God justly condemn me? Might have even been that someone was saying that very thing. Or it may have been that Paul anticipated that very argument. And that's why he's writing what he's writing. And it is that exactly that Paul goes on to argue in this passage. Gentiles, or we might extend it, the universality of all human sinfulness, Jews included, are justly condemned because they all suppress the truth about God. Look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth implied about God. Our pastoral staff try to read regularly a book together when we meet on Tuesdays. Sometimes it's a 
pastoral book, which would be of great help and assistance to us very practically about some aspect of our pastoral life or our Christian life. And sometimes we'll switch gears and we'll try to read something together that's very theological, that challenges us theologically. And after reading John Piper's book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, about that which we do every day of our lives, our pastoral team decided to read a book theologically, and we chose, because some of us had never read it before all the way through, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he speaks to this very thing, does Calvin, when he says this about even these very words of this passage. It is therefore in vain that so many burning lamps shine for us in the workmanship of the universe to show forth the glory of its author. Although they bathe us wholly in their radiance, yet they can of themselves in no way lead us into the right path. Surely they strike some sparks, but before their fuller light shines forth, these are smothered. But although we lack the natural ability to mount up unto the pure and clear knowledge of God, all excuse is cut off because the fault of dullness is within us. What's he saying? He's saying exactly what Paul is saying here. That men suppress the truth. What truth? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Who? To man. Because God has shown it to them. Shown what? God. The person of God Himself. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. His invisible attributes have become clearly visible ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Calvin says we have some sparks. We have as it were, tiny glimpses of the sovereign, uh, tiny radiant glimpses of God. And as soon as we try to reach out for fuller glimpses of this God, this powerful God, this divine nature, this supreme being, it's smothered because of our suppression of the truth. But not so smothered that we could say to God, I need more light. You didn't give me enough light. No, Paul says, they are without excuse, verse 20. Verse 19 says that what we can know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God is speaking to us. That's why I read Psalm 19. The glory of God is filling the universe. Why? Because all you have to do is look at creation and it speaks unmistakably of this Creator God. And if you even, though you might not have received specifically like the Jews, the Ten Commandments, if you just open your eyes, you see the reality that there is a God and that He has created the world. It's obvious. And Paul says, these are all 
righteous reasons to affirm the existence of this Yahweh God, even if we can't know Him beyond a surface level as Creator. We may only know Him through His power and His divinity, but we know there is something greater than we are, more vast than our little world. But what does man do with this knowledge? Paul says he suppresses it. He stands on top of the box of truth and he doesn't let it out. He tries to do everything he can to suppress it, to hold it in, to restrain it, to hold it down. He doesn't want, because of his unrighteousness and his ungodliness, to affirm that there is someone with whom he has to answer, with whom he is to be accountable. That's the issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not a scientific issue. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. And so what man does is he goes to great lengths so as to deny God's reality that he does the very thing the first two of the Ten Commandments forbids him not to do. He puts another supposed God before the true God, namely himself, or something he's created, and he actually creates makeup gods, made-up gods, out of creation itself. That's exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, it is the very violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments. And they didn't even need explicitly the revealing of the Ten Commandments. They knew it in their hearts in their conscience, that there was a God and they have fashioned themselves would-be gods instead of Yahweh God. This is absolutely the case. And even, tragically, those who were given the oracles of God, the very Jews themselves, did the very same thing. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 106.20 says it this way, They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. There's that exchange again. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I don't think that's a fair exchange, do you? Same thing is said virtually in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? In other words, it's gods with a little g. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
You say, well, it's because God gave them up, and you taught us that last time. So it's, it's what God has done in forsaking them. No, it's their responsibility. God's responding to what they are doing. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, it says about the Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. No, it's what they're doing. And God is responding now in the results of His wrath to what they have done. And this is the very violation of the first two commandments, either explicitly or in the conscience of a person. And if someone says, but I didn't know these commandments beforehand, Paul says, man is without excuse. He just flatly says, man is without excuse. And while it may be true that the Gentiles did not have the word of God, they had it written and disseminated in their hearts. And they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And so therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is the righteous judgment of God, beloved, the divine verdict the very results of the wrath of Almighty God against sin. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, I read this, and I study this, and I say to myself, Uncle, enough. That's it. I don't want to hear anymore. I'm convinced. This is, this is enough. Paul says it's not enough. It's not enough. Look at verses 28 to 31. It's as though Paul is saying he's not at all finished with making his courtroom case against the utter sinfulness and guilt of man. And he heaps more guilt and more condemnation upon man by using 21 terms. 21 terms which utterly shuts the door on anyone claiming godliness or righteousness apart from the Creator. I looked at this list of 21 and said to myself, how am I going to get through this? How can I categorize this? Because it really, in one sense, this list of vices defies categorization. There isn't any neat way to organize them. They're really organized grammatically under three headings which aren't alliterative, they aren't illustrative, they aren't snazzy. The first category, Paul says, is that man is filled with all manner of. Do you see that there in verse 29? Which includes four of these terms. And then secondly, he says that mankind is full of, 
verse 29, which includes five characteristic sins. And lastly, he says mankind is, and then he just gives the rest of the vice list, which are 12, which I think we might be able to dissect into some subcategories as we come to them. But I want to quickly, as quickly as I can, which might be an oxymoron, to speak in verse 28 that Paul really buttresses his point about the general depravity of mankind. Notice what he says in verse 28 about man. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up or God gave them over or God abandoned them to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Sort of like a, like a heading before this hideous list of 21 sins. And he's making a word play here. He uses a form of the same word, dokimos, twice in verse 28 to speak of testing something or approving something. And the verse could be translated with something like this. Because people did not approve God in their thinking, God has given them over to minds incapable of approving what is right. Boy, that's profound. You see, since they did not see fit to approve of God in their thinking, God has given them over to minds incapable of approving what is right. Boy, this is a major verdict. This is a, this is a major testimony against the sinfulness of man. This is sort of like the third and... And final nail in the coffin. Paul says that man is turned over to the depravity of his own mind. The English Standard Version that I'm using translates it a debased mind. Some translations that you might be reading might say a worthless mind or a degenerate mind. And then he goes on to describe what kind of cesspool of depravity a mind is without God. By the way, this is where theologians come up with the term total depravity. Don't ever think that reputable theologians just sit in an ivory tower and think up things that have nothing to do with the Bible. This is where it comes from. That's why the New American Standard Bible translates this phrase, a depraved mind doesn't mean that mankind is as wicked as he otherwise could be, for God works in his providence to restrain the evil of this world. Surely he does. But it does mean that every aspect of man's heart is wicked, debased, degenerate, depraved. In other words, it affects every aspect of his life. There's no part of man's life, including every faculty of his mind, even if you wanted to segment it out to mind, will, and affections, is utterly and totally depraved. And Paul says that man does what he ought not to do or what ought not to be done. And I ask you this question. If mankind does not know at least something of God, and I mentioned that Latin phrase, census Detatus, the sense of deity, or sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity. If man doesn't know that, if he doesn't have a sense of the godness of God, if he doesn't have a sense that God is there, then what sense does Paul have when he said man does what ought 
not to be done. That makes no sense. In other words, there's moral oughtness here. He's appealing to the oughtness within mankind. Man is doing what he ought not to do. In other words, it's implied that man ought to know the right thing to do and he's not doing it. Mankind knows inherently in his conscience. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's what I said earlier, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Well, they know what's going on. They know what's going on. Well, if they do, then what does a depraved, debased heart look like? Well, I'm sad to say this is not a 21-gun salute. It's a 21-gun barrage. And Paul, giving other vice lists in his epistles, gives one here, and it is the largest list he ever gives. And it's right here. Number one. They are filled with all manner of. And he gives four descriptive words. Unrighteousness. We've already talked about that from verse 18. All unrighteousness of men. And it's fitting that Paul starts here, since the wrath of God is unleashed against all unrighteousness of men. It's the opposite of God. God's totally righteous. Man is totally unrighteous. You see? Secondly, evil. Poneria. General wickedness may even be translated that way in some of your Bibles. Wickedness. It's another general word for sinfulness. By the way, that same word used of Satan. The evil one. The evil one. How do you like to be grouped alongside Satan? The wicked one. Thirdly, covetousness. Plenonexia, it's translated greed in some of your Bibles. Greed, it's the inordinate desire to have more. It's interesting also that Paul seems to be suggesting here in Romans 1, as I've said to you, that man is idolatrous. In other words, he should be serving the true God, but instead he degenerates into serving idols. And Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, in another vice list, greed, which is idolatry. There's, there's a link here. It could be that greed spawns idolatry, either the worship of self or the worship of things. Fourthly, malice, kakia, means to spite. Or it might even be in your Bibles translated depravity. It means ill will, a malignity. It's a moral badness. And he says that mankind in general is filled with these things. That's why we say it's total depravity. It's it's the filling of these things in the heart of man. Secondly, he uses five descriptive words here and he says they are full of. They are full of. Not a lot different than being filled with, but at least a little difference. They are full of. First of all, envy. Envy. This is that kind of sin that sets people against each other. They're jealous of one another. 
Secondly, murder. Murder. And even these words are closely connected with each other. There's only one letter, really, that separates these two words, envy and murder. And, of course, it would stand to reason that if you envy someone, if you're jealous of someone, and if you let that in your heart over the long haul, envy can lead you to murder someone else. Doesn't James 4, verses 1 and 2 say this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have? That's envy, so you murder. Thirdly, strife. It's obvious why Paul includes this on the heels of the other two. This is wrangling and contention. By the way, this is this particular word is only used by Paul. Talking about contention, strife. This is a hideous list, this list of sins. Fourthly, deceit. Deceit. Craftiness. I hate to tell you fishermen out there, But this is the word used for the bait for fish. It meant any cunning or contrivance or deceiving of one another. Leon Morris writes, There is nothing straightforward about sin, and sinners do not hesitate to deceive one another if their purposes can be advanced. Oh, it's so true. And lastly, maliciousness. Maliciousness could be translated treachery. It's a conscious and intentional wickedness. It's, it's really akin to malice in that first group. Malice, maliciousness. And then he gives a third group of sins. And he simply says, they, mankind, especially Gentiles, are... dot, dot, dot. And he gives 12 words which finish out this overall list. And the first two, it seems to me, go together. The first is gossips. Gossips. And this first word might be contrasted with the next, or maybe grouped with the next, slanderers, in that the person whispers about people in secret. This is the kind of person who secretly spreads confidential things, maybe even rumors about others. might even be translated whisperer, whisperer, a gossip. Even that very word, when it comes off your lips, has an onomatopoeic sound to it, doesn't it? Gossip. The the hissing sound of a snake, a gossip. Slanderers, slanderers, katalalus. Both these words found only here in the New Testament, maybe even coined by Paul, could be distinguished from gossip, this word, by someone being a malingerer, a, a maligner, excuse me, a maligner. He speaks against someone. Maybe if gossip is what you do by whispering in secret, A slanderer is someone who talks about you in public, slanders you. If there is a difference, maybe the J.B. Phillips translation has captured it. Instead of using the two words, gossips and slanderers, he says people are whisperers behind doors and stabbers in the back. Not Not a pretty picture, is it? And if there is a break in this last set of words, it occurs with the next set of terms. And maybe it's because Paul wants to emphasize the complete pride of man. And he gives four pride words. Four pride words. Haters of God. By the way, this is another hapax legomena for you Greek buffs. That means that's the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament. 
occurs only here. It could be translated hated by God. But if that were true, it would be the only word in this list where God is doing something in an active sense or in a passive sense. It probably is active in the sense that I as a person am hating God. So it's haters of God. Correctly translated in the English Standard Version here. Haters of God and probably in your Bibles as well. Haters of God. And you know that goes right along with Romans 1. I don't want this God in my life. I don't want to affirm this Creator. I want to suppress this truth. I want to sit on the box. I hate this God who's been revealed to me. That's what depraved people are like. They suppress the truth. They don't want God. They don't want anything to do with Him. And it flows right into this other pride word, insolent. Insolent. Pride in the sense of superiority. Not just pride itself. This is where we derive the English word hubris. High-handed pride. Hubris, hubristas. It's the idea of someone who's maybe even a violently proud person. Maybe even violence itself. Maybe even physical actions to show somebody your pride and your boastfulness. The next word, haughty. Haughty. The opposite of humility. Arrogance. Could be that this word speaks of someone who genuinely believes they're better than others. They have contempt for others. If that first word insolent could be the actions of a person, this might be the pride of someone's thoughts. The pride of someone's thoughts. And then that word boastful. Boastful. The person who's filled with pride and it comes out in their words. Boy, isn't this interesting? The insolent in their actions, the haughty in their thoughts, and the boastful in their very words. I wondered where boastful might come from. Listen to Leon Morris. He says this, Boastful derives from a word meaning wandering and apparently goes back to the extravagant claims made by wandering men. Think of television evangelists when I read this. Merchants with something to sell, quacks with claims to heal, and wanderers in general with tall tales to tell. Since there's no way of verifying or refuting what such people say, they are sometimes given to making claims that cannot be substantiated. The word includes the thought of evil intent. It is not used of harmless, amusing exaggeration. This is serious stuff. People boasting of what they can't substantiate, but they just keep pouring it on. I can boast of this, I can boast of that, I can do this, I can do that. And then two more on this list that might be grouped together. Inventors of evil. Inventors of evil. Well, this is an interesting phrase. It's, it's the idea of somebody who can't just sin in the normal way. They, they have to scheme and come up with new ways of sinning. Creativity in the performing of evil. Amazing. Inventors of evil. And then this that might seem to you to come out of the blue, disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. Instinctive conscience of the Gentile or through the commandment of the Jew, honor your mother and father. They disregard that. Disregard family structure. Disregard family authority. Do we see that in our world or what? You've been reading in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette of the, of the grandmother who tried to induce the labor of her daughter and then turned right around and killed 
the little baby, allegedly. Isn't that that a picture of this? It's amazing. Or how about the number of people I even read this week of the son who wanted to divorce his parents. That's becoming much more common. It's amazing. And of course, there are even parents who want to make children desire to do such a thing. And then the list of the last four. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Foolish. And and by the way, these last four, they're all un-words. They're all un. They all have that little alpha privative. They all negate the word. Someone who's not wise, someone who doesn't have faith, someone who has no heart, and someone who has no mercy. Foolish. We could translate it senseless. Someone who acts stupidly, like the fool in the book of Proverbs. Faithless. Someone who at their core breaks agreements. They don't fulfill their commitments. You can't trust them. They live their whole life saying, yes, I will, and then no, they won't. And they're treacherous about it. It's not just someone who says they will and then goes off and does something differently. They're deceiving. They're treacherous. And then heartless. Ah, storgus. Storge. One of the words for love. This is ah, storge. The absence of Natural affection, family love. These are those who kill their children or their family or because they want to get back at the pastor or they want to get back at some church members or an estranged wife or children. They walk into the church body and and start shooting. Have no regard for loved ones, relatives, friends, family. And then ruthless. Found only here in the New Testament speaks of one who's without mercy, without pity. Twenty-one. Ending with these last four. Senseless, faithless, loveless, merciless. You know what my first thought was after I studied these 21 words? We need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. Oh, I see myself in some of these I see myself in some of these, and I saw myself before Christ in a lot of these. We need Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to do an evaluation of your heart. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you see yourself in this list of depravity? It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. It's a characteristic list of sins that speak of the degenerate mind, the depraved mind, the debased mind. But it is surely a mind that speaks of someone who doesn't know Christ. Do you know Christ? Oh, if you're here this morning and you see yourself in this list and you say, this characterizes my life. 
any one of these or some of these or most of these, then you need a Savior. You need someone to deliver you from this. You need to be delivered from the abiding wrath of God. If you see yourself in the mirror of God's Word and God's guns of judgment are pointing back at you, embrace Jesus Christ today. Don't be a faithless person. Don't be a merciless person, a ruthless person, a loveless person. Ask Jesus Christ for mercy. Ask Him for grace. The grace that only He can provide through what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He died there in order to take away the very sins that are listed in this chapter. And you can embrace Him this morning, even now. Ask Him to cleanse you. Tell Him that you desire to forsake these sins. And that you want His Son to be the substitute, the one who could die for the very sins that characterize you. Ask Him for forgiveness. Repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior that can redeem us from our depravity. Our gracious Father, we pray that this list would be put as far away from us as the east is from the west so that we might love you and be delivered from your wrath. May it be so. May it be so. Lord, if there are believers here, may we thank you as Paul does, the only blessed forever Amen and amen and amen who has delivered us from the wrath to come. Praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Thank you for forgiveness and salvation in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.